greetings in that worthy name, our Lord Jesus. Sometimes you don't have to say a lot, just ever, only, all, for thee. That say it all. I was um, definitely challenged this morning, the message on giving my own heart. And by the way, I don't know how many years it was, but I gave to Salvation Army this year. That's why I thought of it. <laughs> One time I was going past, but I don't know if I did it with the right heart. <laughs> but a uh, very, very good challenge. Appreciate that. And I do look at it as a challenge. I do want it to be changed into an opportunity in my own heart. There's somehow, there's, I suppose, it is more blessed to give than to receive, the word says. Somehow there's more blessing in giving than there is in receiving, God says. Have we discovered that? Now, obviously, for people to give, there must be people to receive, and there's a place for that. There's a good place to receive. If you're a need, a need in your life, and you receive it, God bless you. God gives that meets the needs, that's good. But God said it's more blessed to give. The blessing comes on the person who receives, but the greater blessing is with that one who gives, whatever it is. So when you sit down and the table's set up at a fellowship meal and you didn't help set up, you're blessed, you received. But the person who set it up is more blessed than you. You can put that in all of life. Okay, well, let's just pause for a word of prayer and pray to the ultimate giver. Let's pray. Lord, we do pause and bow before you this morning. You are the ultimate giver, the giver of everything, giver of life, giver of every good thing that we have. Thank you, Lord, this morning. And, Lord, now we do ask you to give one more thing. We do ask you to give your blessing on this service as your word is brought out. Pray, Lord, that uh, we know you are blessed, but we also recognize that we need your blessing. Even as the recipient of your blessing, we are blessed. We ask for that this morning. So I pray, Lord, you speak to each one of us, each one of our hearts, each one of the places where we're at and meet us where we're at and take us closer on to where you want us to be. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought, too, that this is the first message, first Sunday of this year, 2016. I have to learn how to uh, 
all those papers that I signed, they got to learn how to put that new year in there. For the first month, you put the old year in, and you got to erase it and put the new one in until we get adjusted to the new year. Did you make your New Year's resolutions yet? According to studies, about 45% of Americans make New Year's resolutions. What do you think are the top resolutions? (laughs) Did you read the study? Who said that? Dave? Oh, (laughs) sorry, it was Josh. (laughs) It came from your direction. (laughs) I wasn't... (laughs) This is bad. I would <laughs> According to the Statistic Brain Research Institute, the top three for 2015, that was last year, the study was number one was to lose weight, and with that was to exercise more and eat better. Number two was to get organized, and the number three is to spend less Say more. According to the same study, the success rate for the first year is about 26% on average. Not too good. But one other observation that they made. People who make explicit resolutions are ten times more likely to attain their goals than people who don't make explicit resolutions. So maybe that is an encouragement to make some kind of explicit goals in our life. And we might ask the question, what do resolutions and goal setting have to do with the Christian? How should we relate to this obviously popular cultural practice? And you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is not the main text, but we'll just use this as an introduction. First Corinthians chapter 9. We were in Second Corinthians chapter 9. Now we'll be in First Corinthians chapter 9 for a few verses. At the end of the chapter, verse starting at verse 24. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. So fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway." The point, one of the points I want to make out of these verses is they do it. What do they do? They do it for temporal benefit. They discipline themselves. They set goals. They actually go through excruciating sacrifice for temporary benefit. Do you want to lose weight for the sake of vanity? Okay, they want to lose weight to be more healthy or to be more attractive or to look better in a swimsuit. 
They want to be more organized because life has become unmanageable because of lack of discipline. They want to save money mostly because they spend too much. Maybe on their covetous desires or for possessions or status. So they strive to be temperate. There's a temporal benefit. We should strive also, but we should do it for eternal benefit. Do you want to lose weight for the sake of vanity or to better better honor God with your body? Do you want to manage your time and money well so you can give more and or be a better steward of the resources God has given to you? Or that you can, so that you can store up treasures on earth. Paul was extremely resolute and extremely goal oriented. You can see that in this verse. Undisciplined did not describe the Apostle Paul. He was focused on fulfilling God's ultimate calling on his life. And near the end of his life, he could say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course that God gave me. He could say that. He did say that. So there's a reason for us to be goal-oriented. This morning, I'm not going to focus on personal goals, but I'm going to focus more on Oasis Christian Fellowship goals. That includes us all. Do we have goals? Can we articulate or describe what they are? Are the individual goals of the people in this congregation similar to the goals of other people in this congregation? Good question. What are the underlying or overarching goals of this fellowship? And are we highly motivated and disciplined to reach those goals? Here's a few goals I have heard among us. One goal for Oasis Christian Fellowship that I've heard of or been articulated to provide a stable church environment to pass on the faith to our children. A goal. Another goal is a church that best prepares my children to reach others. A goal. Still another is a church that is strong enough on discipleship to preserve and expand. And that sort of puts them together, doesn't it? If you were to make a New Year's resolution for Oasis and you would articulate it, what would your goal be for 2016? What goals do we want to accomplish in the next year? The next five years? The next 30 years? Goals have to be short-term and long-term. So what are your goals? What are mine? What is my vision for Oasis? Obviously, we can say 
Well, it doesn't matter what vision we have for Oasis. The only vision that matters is Jesus Christ's vision. The only identity we have is our identity in Christ. The only faith we have is faith in Christ. The only power we have is Holy Ghost power. The only authority we have is King Jesus. Thank you. Now, what does that mean in everyday life? How is that applied on Monday morning or Friday evening? Luke Eby told me some 20 years ago that he did not become a Christian immediately when he was confronted with the gospel. Because in his mind, he thought becoming a Christian meant that you immediately sell everything you have, quit your job, and go into full-time ministry. That was his perception. That was, in his mind, the goal of the Christian life. Obviously, some of that thinking was wrong. I'm going to read several verses in First Timothy, talking about goals, talking about church goals. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. This is Paul writing to um, his young disciple Timothy. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the church of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So Paul is writing to young Timothy. Obviously, he had a vision for this church at Ephesus, which is where Timothy was at. Timothy was a pastor in a local church. It was part of Christ's body. It was filled with Christians who had been born again. But Paul saw the need to give to the church through Timothy some specific direction because the church faced specific issues. So Paul instructed Timothy what to do with the false teachers. If you read down Timothy, I'm giving you a rough outline. What do you do with the false teachers? Stop him. Then he told Timothy who to pray for, how to pray, where to pray. He told him how to dress. He gave him the, gave him the um, role of the women in the church. Then he gave qualifications for elders and for deacons. So far. And then he said, These things I write unto you, hoping to come to thee shortly and give you more things. But I, if I, I gave you these, because if I don't come, that thou mayest know how thou behave thyself in the church of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And then he goes on with more instructions, which I won't outline at this time. So just as Timothy faced specific issues at Ephesus, we face specific issues here also. So what is my goal for Oasis? 
I thought, as a leader, maybe I could put on the table some of the goals I have for Oasis. And with my typical wordiness and my typical overanalyzing, I did not nearly get through the list, so it's only a partial list. <laughs> but I do have a goal in this message. That way you can understand where I'm at and what my goals are. And it opens me up for critiquing from you. And hopefully it'll also get a discussion stimulate in the congregation of goals. And hopefully it'll merge our goals and our weak areas, our strengths, each one of us have them. As we interact with one another, we can get balanced in our visionary strengths and visionary weaknesses. So, number one, goal for Oasis. Love God supremely and above all else. God, the triune God, the Son, the Spirit, the one who is the first cause behind everything. First in John chapter 1, I'll read a few verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The first cause, God. Love him supremely above all else. John Piper is a Christian hedonist, and that can be a Sunday afternoon discussion sometime. But he said, or he asked this question. He said, what is the greatest need of every missionary or pastor or Christian? What is the greatest need of every Christian? And he said this, to know God better and to enjoy God more than anything else they know and enjoy in all the world. That's the greatest need. To know God better and enjoy God more than anything else they know and enjoy in all the world. If you love God, now, if you love anything else more than God, it possesses you. Even good things. If you are living for your children, Parents now, if you are living for your children, if your children are more important to you than God, you will probably either greenhouse them in an unhealthy way, or you will drive them away by your over-control, because they are your life. If you love money more than God, you will probably be either a workaholic or dishonest because you love money. If you love your reputation more than you love God, you won't be real 
and neither will you do not neither will you do certain things or you will not obey God in key areas that will harm your reputation because you love your reputation. If you love anything more than God, you are driven by that thing. You don't possess it. It possesses you. Even loving to serve people can become more important than loving God. So we have primary and secondary. Loving God is primary. Everything else is secondary. And we all have lists of priorities. We do. But how can we tell which is primary and which is secondary? Is that a question to ask? How do I know? We have clues about it when we analyze where do we gain our significance from and our security from. That will give us clues. If something threatens the thing that is primary in our life, our response will tell us what's primary. It's even just threatened. Or you lose what you are living for. You don't just experience sorrow. If we lose secondary things, we experience sorrow. We do. If we lose our children, if we lose money, if we lose whatever else you want, we have sorrow. There is sorrow in this world. I don't have to put it away. But if you lose what is most important to you, it's not just sorrow. It's devastation. It's ruin. It is the end of the world if you are lose what you're living for. We don't have an identity anymore. There's no meaning in life anymore because we have lost what we were living for. You know, it is in the Lord's goodness that he threatens the things that we live for. It is his goodness. The things that have a hold of our life. And sometimes he takes them away. And then we can recognize the elevated position that it has had in our life. In our heart. And then we can repent. And then we can thank God for his Horrible, awful pruning in our life. Whatever you love most possesses you. Do you want to be possessed by God or by money? Or service to other things? Or pleasure? Or family? Which is the kindest master? You're going to be possessed by somebody. Which is the kindest master? The Lord God of heaven or the things of earth? Which is the ablest to help? Maybe we should ask this question. Which one is most worthy? Which is ultimately the answer. Which one is ultimately most worthy? And we all know the answer. So isn't God good? Sending us trouble so that we can get a glimpse of the idolatry of our own hearts and weaning us away from that. 
There's a song that I thought I would like to read, the one that we're familiar with. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There is light for a look at the Savior and light more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, I sang that song often already, and you're all probably all familiar with that song. This morning, that song took a new meaning to me, or yesterday when I was preparing the message. As I put it in the context of this point, let's imagine you have lost what is most precious to you, and you have found out that life has no meaning. Now, let's, 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 let's sing of someone in that state, and let's read it again. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. Life has ended for you. Now it's time to look somewhere else. There is light for a look at the Savior, and life more abundant and free than whatever you had before. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full on his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Ignatius Loyola said, Man was created to this end, to praise, reverence, and serve the Lord God. Our first duty is adoration. The second is awe. And the third is service. Are you, am I willing to be examined if this is actually true in my life. A goal for us individually, and then a goal for us collectively at Harmony. Harmony. Oasis. Love God supremely and above all else. What a testimony. What a power. What a blessing. Is that a goal for Oasis? Another goal I have for Oasis, this is somewhat arbitrary, but it is one I have, and that is solid, authentic conversions. Jesus said in John chapter 3, starting at verse 3, Talking to Nicodemus, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, Ye must be born again. Born again. Born from above. A new principle within, the song says. A changed heart, changed desires, and a changed life. Breaking into one of Paul's suburbly long sentences in Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to just break into there. He says this, who, which means the Father, 
hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. You know, we cannot put God in a box. We say that. We ought to stop trying it. We can't put God in a box. He works in many different ways. Some people, when they're under conviction of sin, or when they come through to the Lord, it is truly an emotional, glorious experience. Some people experience that. For others, very little so. In fact, emotion may not even be hardly a part of it. Emotion is actually not an extremely good determiner of a future Christian life. I have seen emotional types of conversions that have not lasted. I have seen and heard of very unemotional conversions that went on to a life of serving God. So no two people experience the exact same experience. I, for one, came to God through a lot of ignorance. I didn't know what it meant to be a disciple of Christ when I became born again, when I was born again. All I know is I came sincerely and with my whole heart. I prayed some kind of sinner's prayer, but it was not the prayer that saved me. God saved me. An unworthy, an ignorant, and a very proud individual. God saved me. But there are some solid fundamentals that every true God, child of God must experience. And we want to go through some of them this morning. A vision for oasis. Solid, authentic conversions. One of the fundamentals that we need to know, a child, uh, anyone needs to know before they get saved, is they need to recognize their lost condition. That can be described in many ways. Naturally, we are sinners. Did we hear that this morning? Naturally, we're sinners. Our hearts get dirty. Um, in a sense, a child is born with a clean slate. But in a sense, it's not. But whatever clean slate it had, it does get dirty. And that's everybody. But as sinners, God will not do business with us as a sinner. Uh, I need to qualify that. He sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. He's good. He's a good God. But he will not do business with a sinner. Not in this life, nor in the life to come. He will not do business with a sinner. If there's a sinner here this morning, God will not do business with you in that state. Estranged is a word that is often used when a husband and wife are separated. They're living apart from each other. They are estranged from each other. They should be living together. They're married. And in a marriage, the expectation is they live together. But they are estranged from one another. They're not living together. There is a rift in their relationship. The sinner 
is estranged from God in this life and into eternity, the next life. Now, one of the motivations to drive a sinner to seek a solution is the thought of hell. The thought of estrangement from God for eternity in a place called hell is a motivator for a sinner to seek a solution. But most of the time, estrangement from God in this life doesn't bother the sinner. Most of the time it doesn't. Why not? Because as sinners, by nature we want to live our own life. We want to be autonomous. That means self-ruling. We want to do our own thing. And so, a sinner does not really mind the fact that he's estranged from God here. It's a bother. He likes his life. But the thought of estrangement from God in eternity gets a second look many times. So sometimes a sinner is motivated to seek an answer. And if they hear a gospel that's something like this, if you pray this prayer, if you receive Jesus in your heart, you don't need to go to hell. You can go to heaven when you die. So come, and some do, for a fire escape, to escape hell, to get a out-of-jail-free card, is what some come and respond to. But a sinner needs to realize that his estrangement, his or her estrangement from God is not a fire escape plan that God has in mind. That's not what God has in mind. God does not have in mind that we believe on him so that he can accept us into heaven. Not at all. I mean, yeah, not at all. I shouldn't say that. (laughs) That's not the primary purpose. He has a kingdom in mind. A kingdom with a real king, with a real kingdom order, with real kingdom-hearted people in it. A spiritual kingdom in a physical world is what God has in mind. And ultimately, it explodes into eternity. You know, that's what the cross is all about. Jesus took that dirty heart, my sins, your sins, he took them on the cross. And he took them out of the way so that that sin issue that kept us estranged from God is taken care of. That sins is what keeps us from God. That was taken care of on the cross. Not only that, not only did he take care of our sins, but whoever believes on Jesus, he will come and live inside of that proud, wicked, self-ruling, self-willed, autonomous heart. He will come and live in there, and he will begin to rule from inside out. He's going to change it 
He's going to wash it. He is going to clean house. So much that he says he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of light. In the kingdom of his dear son. So when I say solid, authentic conversions, I mean a sinner who has become a saint. A true, believing, surrendered child of God. A disciple of the Lord Jesus and a possessor of eternal life. Clarification. Not without issues. When you think of a saint, what comes to your mind? Not without issues. Not without struggles. Not without hang-ups. We come to God who we are. And we bring a lot of us with us. Amen? But, born again. Born from above. A new principle within. A changed heart. Changed desires. And a changed life that follows. The opposite of that is to go through the motions of becoming a Christian. Either by praying a sinner's prayer, which is the evangelical pathway, or by going through instruction class and joining a church, which is the Mennonite method. Neither of those is wrong. Neither of those is wrong. But if it does not bear the evidence of a walk with God, both in spirit and in life, it's not an authentic conversion. So a goal I have for Oasis is an expectation that there will be authentic conversions. Life-changing. Bringing an end to the estrangement from God and resulting in a genuine walk with God. Okay, number three. Number three is... Principle separation from the world unto God. Now, each word is important. Principle separation from the world unto God. I just got done saying that if God saves you, he transfers you in from the devil's kingdom into the kingdom of light. Now there is a sign on the believer's heart under new management. Under new management. The old boss has been fired. There's a new boss in charge. There's a new, um, there's a new, uh, chef running this restaurant. <laughs> if you want to put it in any kind of, uh, physical way. But wait a minute. Sometimes I hear the old boss still talking. In fact, sometimes the old boss is still giving me directions. I like my new boss. I really like my new boss. I'm glad he's my boss. 
But sometimes, sometimes, he demands pretty much of me. Sometimes his orders are pretty hard. I think i got to work overtime. My old boss, he gives me an easier way. He let me off easier sometimes. And sometimes he tells me, don't be so exact to your new boss. Just be a little more moderate. Give in a little here. It's a little easier. Sometimes those old co-workers invite me to enjoy, to join in their escapades. And sometimes I want to go. And so it goes. That's why God gave words like these. And I'm going to read a number of number of uh, verses that apply to, uh, to principled separation. Romans 12, 1 and 2, very familiar. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. James chapter 4, verse 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. James 1:27 Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this to visit the fatherless and widows in their afflictions and to keep himself unspotted from the world. John chapter 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 to 17 Love not the world neither the things that are in the world if any man love the world the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Some verses that speak to it. On the negative side, we're talking about the, but both negative and positive here. But uh, on the negative side, is it be not conformed to, be not friends of, Keep yourself unspotted from, love not, what, the world, the present world system as it operates in opposition to God. Robert Johnson wrote in 1871, it's a little bit of a lengthy lengthy, uh, piece out of his commentary, but I like to read it because it does make a good point. And sort of gives an introduction here. God made the world very good with beauty and harmony everywhere. All things around contributed to man's rational happiness, even sending up his thoughts and his affections in admiration and love to the great creator so so that he in the sublimity of reason and free will, the Lord of the creatures, led the course of the world's praise. That's the man, led the course of the world in praise. But sin, alluring his heart from his heavenly father, brought in 
jarring discord. The devil became the prince of this world, and what God has made order, he made chaos. The world is now enveloped in a distorted and misleading atmosphere of falsehood. All things presented themselves to man's mind and heart in untrue dimensions and relations. And so instead of drawing him toward God and leading him into the land of uprightness, rather they guided him further away into the far country of wickedness and death. Thus now God and the world which he created are morally in opposition to each other. Now, and it is just continuing. Now the glory of the world is self-glory. The, the goal of the world is self-glory. The goal of the world is self-fulfillment, self-control, self-indulgence, self-satisfaction. And all of it is hostile to God and all of it antagonistic to his word. And all of it opposes his will. And to this, John agrees in 1 John 5.19, and we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. Isn't it astounding that the very world that God made and then gave it to mankind to keep it and to dress it, that very world that he saved was very good, that same world is now in opposition to its creator. So much so that God set an alternative world in its place. The first world is now in opposition. God has set an alternative world up in its place, which is the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Actually, that alternative world is the original world set right back up again. One major problem today is that the modern church has become very worldly. We have probably all heard that poem about the church and the world and how they used to walk apart and then after some time now they walk together. Little by little, the world wooed the church into its arm. Now, why do I say the church is worldly? Why would I say something like that? Is it true? Well, is there any genre of music that the devil can concoct? Is there any part of it that has not been put into Christian music, uh, Christian words? Is there? I don't know of any. Is there any branch of psychology that is not represented by Christians on some level? Are there any clothes that Christians at some level would not wear? In other words, large parts of the church has become very worldly. And for various reasons. Some is through ignorance. The word was not taught. Others have a carnal bent and naturally drifted that way. Still others 
out of a sincere desire to reach the world, have minimized the difference between the two kingdoms. At any rate, what used to be very worldly has now become normal and accepted on a lot of fronts. 150 years ago, I'm guessing, I didn't check it exactly, missionaries went to Hawaii with the gospel. One of the things they taught is to taught the people how to put clothing on. They taught them to put clothes on, rather, I should say. Now, Christians go to Hawaii and take their clothes off. And what used to be blatantly heathen practice, tattooing, body piercing, is now championed as Christian liberty. So what was initially heathen, over time, becomes mainstreamed into the Christian church. And now the Christian liberty doctrine is so strong that it doesn't take very long. It has streamlined the process. Anything that comes from the world, not anything, a lot of things that come from the world, it's the Christian liberty doctrine is so has streamlined it that it comes into the church very quickly. I had to read it this way. Now the Christian liberty doctrine is so strong that it has streamlined the acceptance of almost every new thing that comes down the heathen pike. Not everything, but a lot. Now we at Oasis, we are not in the mainstream of that powerful current. We are not. We believe in following the Lord Jesus in such a way that we don't care if we are a little distinct and odd. We don't care. We believe that being a lot, and for whatever reason he went down into the cities of the plains and finally ended up in the government of that city, we believe that's not the best choice. We believe Abraham, who kept himself distinctly separate and kept himself in God's promised land, that that's the way to go. Things for Lot didn't turn out so well. Not for him and not for his children. And he didn't seem to have much effect. But though we're not in the mainstream, we do feel pulls that way. And we see others moving into that direction. What direction? Toward accommodation. Toward acceptance and assimilation into the culture. Some, believing it's not only okay to do so, but it's actually right and good to do so. And the confusing thing is, historically this has been true, and it's still true. The liberals, the ones who are moving, the ones who are accepting, always, I could say always, always, Maybe there's a tiny exception. They always seem more loving than the ones who want to hold it. The liberals seem more loving even while they're less orthodox and less traditional. 
The liberals will always seem more loving than those holding on to the truth. And this can be very confusing to a young person especially. That loving, generous, we heard about giving this morning. How about giving away some of your beliefs or some of your practices? You're very generous. A generous heart attracts people. It does. And so you have someone who's generous. It's attracting. It attracts. And it actually, to some degree, looks very good. It seems so open, so fresh, so generous. Especially when you're in a situation where it's not been going too good. Ah, here's the answer. Here's a new way. This is it. And so it's confusing. Two weeks ago, a co-worker told me this story. He was part of a Mennonite church. 40 years ago, he was a, a deacon in that church. And uh, in that community where he was at, he was in an outreach church community. And in that community, there was a police officer who was a very wicked man. Police officers can be very wicked. They can be very nice, too. But this one was a, an uh, exceptionally Wicked man. He was, I don't know what all he was. He got saved. Saved. Gloriously saved. I mean, his his conversion and his change was astronomical. It was a sight to see. It was amazing. I think his wife got converted too. Phenomenal. Changed. Authentic conversion, right? The Mennonite church that he, that this co-worker that belonged to, that he was a deacon of, that church would not allow that police officer to join the church and to partake of communion and all those things because he carried a gun. And this man thought that was wrong. You have to receive someone who get converted. You have to receive them in. And he, that and other reasons, left the Mennonite church. Should he have been received in the church? What do you think? We believe and practice many things that many Christians no longer do, but the pressure is on. One pastor made this confession when the congregation he was pastoring was drifting from the orthodox belief that they have always held. And he made this confession. He said, it's my fault. He said, I told them what to believe but I did not tell them what not to believe. You know, ministry must both be positive and negative. You believe that? When I taught discipleship class years ago at Harmony, I tried to. I made it a goal. 
of not only to teach the truth. I made it a goal to lift up alternative views and beliefs and examine them in the in this discipleship class. Lift them up, explain what is wrong with them, why we don't believe them, then lift up the truth and why we say this is the truth and give them contrast. So I told them not only what to believe, but I told them what not to believe. There's a quote I discovered, which I won't identify. It says, Our purpose as Christ followers should be to show the world what we're for, not primarily what we're against. It is also one of the key differences between a religious or kingdom mindset, religious and kingdom mindset. Jesus modeled and taught what he was for, while the Pharisees focused on what they were against. There's actually some truth there. There is some truth there. But if you take that truth wholesale, you will it grossly... I say, yeah, I think I have it written down here wrong. If you, if you prioritize that, you will de-emphasize some very important things that need to be emphasized if you take this quote exclusively. Chester Weaver, some of you know him. I don't actually know him personally. don't know him well. I just know some of the things he writes. And we'll balance these out a little later. Chester Weaver said, behind the cry of relevancy, behind the cry of relevancy, we want to be relevant, we want to be connecting to the people we're trying to reach. Behind that cry of relevancy is a cry for wholehearted worldliness. Never acknowledged, of course. He's talking here, since I have seen this scenario before, my heart goes out to the ignorance behind the cry. People supposedly mean well. The talk sounds okay, but death follows closely behind. It does not require a rocket scientist to see through the matter. And he says this, keeps on saying here, a worldview of evangelical theology naturally results in this kind of thinking. Why have Anabaptist churches lost their own New Testament worldview? Worldview to adopt a, and he has in quotation, a non-relevant worldview. He calls that relevant worldview a non-relevant worldview. He said the evangelicals had caught many Anabaptists who should know better. And he finishes by this. He says, "I hate to watch another generation end up being losers." But if we insist upon it, God will allow us to do our own thing while we pat each other on the back. Ultimately, he chooses the consequences. Now, that's pretty strong. And I know there have to be qualifications. It's not all balance. But what can you expect as a resolution from me as a pastor? You can expect 
me to teach you from the word what the truth is. What to believe and what to do. You can also expect me to tell you what not to believe and what not to do. You can expect that of me. To love God, we must reject the world and its system and its goals. And a quote that I found somewhere said, love is selective and aggressive. That's why we get passionate about certain things. It is selective and aggressive. A little bit of practical areas in this area. We are right at the edge of a current that will pull us slowly but surely towards enculturation and assimilation. For those reasons, those of us who see it most clearly will say certain things like this. We will say to reject most movies. We will say do not participate or be very selective in your participation of public recreational places. Um, Sporting events. I don't think we discussed it, but we can. Why don't you put up a Christmas tree? Well, what does it have to do with Christ to start with? That's one. But the other is the assimilation, the enculturation. There's a reason why we say don't go that direction. Why not? Why have such seemingly innocent why not do such seemingly innocent or actually seemingly beneficial activities? Or that stream is relentless. It is going somewhere. When it comes to attire and grooming, I have always appreciated the principle re- approach, which is why it's having it in that uh, point principle um, separation. What do I mean by principle? I appreciated the principled approach with boundaries. The contrast of a principled approach is when you come to a tire is where it's specified exactly what color, exactly what length, exactly what cut, exactly, exactly, exactly. That is the opposite of the principled approach of trying to fulfill the scriptural uh, admonition of dressing Modestly. We and each generation, if we take the principled approach and if we do it effectively, we will avoid two ditches. We will avoid what the Amish have done, which they are stuck somewhere 17th century German culture in their dress. It varies, but they're stuck somewhere. Another example, I think I can give it. Hope I won't offend anyone. Eastern Mennonite have there have placed themselves at a certain place in history, which is somewhere 1940s Mennonite and American society, and sort of blended them together. 
And that's where they're at. They're not moving. That's where they're at. Because they use a pattern rule um, length approach. The other ditch is just throwing off traditional clothing and adopting mostly mainstream attire and grooming. I'm not against change. I am not against change. Most of the change I see occurring goes one direction. Yes, it is less traditional, but it's also less principled. The covering is smaller. The sleeves are shorter. The sweaters are more stylish. The hairstyle and beard are more fattish. The clothing and footwear are more casual. So there is change. The question is, is it as principled as what has replaced it? Is it as modest modest and lowly and common and practical as before? Years ago, I heard Denny Keniston addressing this very, very subject. It's a burden he had. He saw a change occurring between the generations. And he said, you look at family portraits and you see old grandma and grandpa. Then you see the children and then you see the grandchildren. And uh, he looked at that and he received some wisdom. So he challenged the younger generation. Did you receive a special revelation from God that your parents don't have, that you dress the way you do? Are you more spiritual than your parents that you can do that? And they didn't. Are you wiser? Or why are you changing? Fathers, could you wear your son's clothing? Mothers, size aside, could you wear your daughter's clothing? I believe in the principal approach in this area in God's word. Firmly believe in it, but it must be principle. Must be. Not all Christians are obedient in this area, and we must not let that confuse us or deter us. We do not have to condemn them. We do not have to condemn everyone who else who does not do as we do. But we can disapprove of them. That is okay. We can warn them that is okay. If they are disobedient, if they're going the wrong way, you can disapprove of that. You don't have to condemn it. We're talking about Pharisees being so condemning. You don't have to condemn them. But you can disapprove of it with a right heart. Has anybody ever heard of the bakery? Sweet cakes? Wondering how much anyone's up. Anybody know about heard of the bakery sweet cakes? You did. <laughs> it's that uh, bakery in Oregon. I think it's Oregon. This is Washington. That is getting fined one hundred and thirty-five thousand dollars for refusing to bake a cake 
and decorate it for a gay wedding. The owner of that, well, the, the woman, the wife, she does most. She seems like she's the most the one that runs it. But the, um, the owner, the man there of that bakery, I've seen a picture of him. He has an earring in each ear and has a soul patch. And his wife is dressed not extremely modest. They are standing up for something. They are standing up for God's truth. They are not applying some of God's principles. And we have to accept that. We have to accept that. Let us be as strong as they are in all of God's word. But let's not let them confuse us. So this morning, I have a few specific goals. And we're running way out of time, so we won't go in any more goals. But love God supremely and above all else. Solid, authentic conversions. Principled separation from the word of God. I have had people come to me in this congregation who challenge me. Whether I love God supremely. Amen. I have had someone come to me that questioned years ago whether my conversion was authentic. Challenged me. And I have had people come to me and point out areas I was not separated from the world effectively. We need the freedom among each other to do all of that. Be careful with the authentic conversion. Don't disturb a young, struggling believer. Be very careful with that. That's what some of that did to me. was not all that great, that one. But we need freedom with each other to speak into each other's lives in these three points. If it's okay for me to ask you whether you love God... Is it also okay for me to come to ask you whether you are actually obedient in the area of modesty and separation? Should have that freedom without being, oh, we need that freedom. And time will not permit me to speak on other goals such as marriage, strong families, evangelism, brotherhood, and community life. We all have goals in those areas. Let's find out what each other's goals are and let us rise up and let us build. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. We want to love you absolutely, always, ever, with everything that we are and have. You have given everything to us. We can you can ask for nothing more than for us to give everything to you. I pray you would bless us here at Oasis as we enter and begin a new year. I pray, Lord, that you would bless this year together, us as a congregation, with love, with love for you and love for each other, with an understanding hearts and with purpose to serve you both obediently and effectively. So, Lord, I pray you be with each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.